All right, everyone. We'll go ahead and get started. I want to thank you guys for being here in this class today. My name is Zach, and I am from Overland Park, Kansas. I grew up in Overland Park, Kansas, which is a suburb of the Kansas City area. And I'm so thankful to see all of you here today. I get to work with and go to church with some of the people in this room. And for those of you who I don't know, uh, thank you for attending this class. I hope it'll be meaningful to you. A little bit about me, uh, my wife Rachel and I uh, met at the church in Overland Park uh, several years ago and now we have uh, two children, a little kiddo, uh, a guy who's three and a half years old named Carter and then a few years ago one of the biggest joys of our life is uh, we adopted our niece, my niece, and uh, she is now our daughter and so uh, she's here somewhere running around but she chose, she texted me a few minutes before this class started and decided to study English instead of come to the class. And so uh, she said, is that okay? I said, yeah, that's fine. So, um, but uh, grateful that you guys are here. Uh, I enjoy working at the church. I'm also the author of two books. One is called Prisoners in the Bible, and it's written specifically for people who are currently incarcerated. And so if you happen to know someone or uh, who has a relative who is in prison, uh, prisoners in the Bible might be a good option for them. It's uh, every chapter in the book is about someone in the Bible who was in some form or some way in prison. And so it's written for inmates in mind and there's study guide questions at the end of each chapter for them to do personal reflection. Uh, the other book I wrote more recently is called A Time to Preach and it's about the idea of preaching occasionally and working on a or being part of a church leadership where someone steps in and fills the pulpit from time to time. And so I'm not the preaching minister at Overland Park, that's, that's Gilbert over here, but from time to time, uh, pretty regularly I do preach. And so what the book is about is for people who also preach occasionally. And so there's uh, strategies in there for how to make the most of that opportunity. The premise of the book is that sometimes or often, too often, people see the Sunday where the main preacher is not going to be there as a convenient day to skip. Yeah. or a convenient day to stay home, or uh, just kind of play a game on your phone or something. Well, uh, there might be good reason for that, but there are ways that we occasional <coughs> preachers can take advantage of our time uh, to preach and make the most of it. And so that's a little bit about me. Uh, getting into today's topic of visceral sin. Several months ago, I decided that I wanted to cut sugary drinks and sodas out of my diet. And the reason I wanted to do that is because I don't think that soda is inherently bad, but for me, I do not have the ability to drink soda in moderation. And so I know that some people have that gift, but if I were to go out here to the grill and have lunch and decide I was gonna have a can of Coke uh, just as a one-time thing, I would do that tomorrow too. And I would have some Coke the day after that. And so I decided that I wanted to cut sugary drinks completely out of my diet, and it's been a battle. All of my life I've kind of had a battle uh, with drinking too much soda. My junior year of college down at ACU, I was in class one day, and there was a group of four of my classmates doing a group presentation, and I started feeling uh, a pain um, that was a level of severity that I never felt before in my life. And it was kind of scary, actually, because I didn't know what was going on, and it was um, you know, down here, and it was hurting really, really bad, and it was unlike anything else. And I didn't want to get up and leave because I was too self-conscious about getting up and leaving during my uh, peers' presentation. And so I just stayed there and toughed it out, which was miserable. I walked back to the dorm, and I realized I needed to go to the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room, and I sat in the waiting room for a long time, and I thought, this is, this is the worst. This has to be worse than childbirth. That's, that's why I'm not really. And so, uh, I know it's not. And then you know, I get to the emergency room. I get uh, admitted. I'm back there. I'm talking to the doctor. And it turns out that I had a kidney stone. And talking to the doctors afterward and everything, I was drinking way too much soda. I was at that stage in my life where I just kind of forgotten about water. Uh, anyone ever stage in life, you just don't drink water anymore? Uh, that's what I was doing uh, back in college. And so... I've been trying to stop <laughs> drinking sugary drinks. And so uh, one thing I did was I went to Google for motivation and I started typing in a few months ago, what are the negative effects of drinking too much soda? That's what I wanted to know. And so what I read about is how drinking soda on a daily basis 
can contribute to a specific type of fat called visceral fat. And what they're talking about is, according to the Mayo Clinic, is that visceral fat is not the type of fat that I can just take my two fingers and pinch right here. It's more deeply embedded and it's in a more dangerous location because it surrounds the organs. And drinking soda day in and day out can contribute to the buildup of that type of fat and actually uh, lower your life expectancy um, the more visceral fat you have. And so that motivated me. And that also made me think about the connections um, between this idea of having something so deeply embedded in our lives and our spiritual life. And so I got to thinking about sin and how there are some sins that are more deeply embedded in our behavior than other sins. And just like with normal fat versus visceral fat, there's some sins that just seem to be on the surface for us and maybe even uh, easily accessible in terms of removing from our lives and sins that stand out and they don't feel good and they shouldn't feel good and we're able to say, you know what, that was weird. And that's, that's maybe what we call um, kind of usual sin where we just, uh, we experience it, we realize that it wasn't good and we take it out of our lives. And then I feel like each of us also has at least one visceral sin, a sin that is more deeply embedded into our way of living, uh, into our pattern of behavior. And so my premise of this class, of this conversation, is this. Each of us has at least one sin in our life that is more deeply embedded than other sins, and I have two thoughts on that. Uh, it's different for each of us what that sin might be. My visceral sin is in all likelihood not your visceral sin. The second thing is that I'm not arguing that a visceral sin is intrinsically worse than any other sin. And I'm also not arguing that it's not. What I am arguing is that it's more dangerous to us because of how deeply embedded it is in our behavior. And so with that, we'll go ahead and um, get started. And so what I wanna start with is making sure that we talk about what the word sin actually means. One of the things I'm fearful of in our Christian conversations is that we talk about sin, but we don't take time to define sin. And so each of you should have an index card and a, and a pen. And so I want to take two minutes right now, and we're not going to have to share these or anything like, but just for a time of reflection, I want to take two minutes and I want you to write your own personal definition of what sin is on that index card. So we'll do that now. About 30 more seconds. I know I just mentioned that we're not going to have to share these, but would anyone like to share what they wrote down? about a definition of sin? Yes, please. Mine says, uh, disobedience to God's desires for us could be defiance or could even be neglecting what we know God's will for us is. Hmm. I like that, the disobedience and it could come through defiance or just pure neglect. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Anyone else? Yes, please. Something God says will harm us spiritually. So something God teaches that will harm us spiritually. Very good, thank you. Yes, Gilbert. Uh, uh, missing God's intended purpose. Oh, yeah. It doesn't always have to be moral or immoral, yeah. but it's just not hitting yeah. intentions for us. Yeah, so missing out on God's intentions. I think you raised your hand. 
uh, knowingly and willingly doing something you know to be displeasing to God. Mm, so very deliberate, knowingly and willingly doing something displeasing to God. Thank you for that. Yes? Um, to sort of piggyback on what she said, um, seeing as what you know inherently is wrong, and one may not know they are committing a sin until they are enlightened. Mm. Once enlightened comes the time one is held responsible to ask forgiveness. Yes, yes. Thank you for sharing that way. We're going to, I'm glad you brought that up because we're going to touch on that very idea uh, in a few minutes. Thank you. Would anyone else like to share before we move on? I said will, willful rebellion against God. Willful rebellion against God, yes. Yeah. Thank you everyone for sharing these definitions. And I want to share just a few more, uh, starting with this is how Merriam-Webster, if you were to look it up on their website or go to the dictionary, this is how they define uh, sin. Uh, one is an offense against religious or moral law, and then an, also an action that is or is felt to be highly reprehensible. And so there's some, on the second definition there, there's a community element um, to it. And there is when we sin as well, isn't there? There is uh, um, either the fear of kind of community shame or uh, the reality of community shame. And also I want to point out that in the New Testament, there are several instances of words that describe sin. There is a main word in the New Testament that describes sin that's used most of the time. We're going to get to that on the next slide. But there's probably uh, somewhere between you know, 8 and 20 words in all that um, New Testament writers use to describe sin. You know, sometimes sin is described as a trespass. Uh, we can see that you know, in the Lord's Prayer and in other places. Uh, there is an idea of sin in the New Testament that's described as sinning that creates a moral debt. Uh, so it's almost like transactional, um, this type of sin that Jesus talks about sometimes. And then there's the action of luring or enticing one into sin. I wrote intro sin, I'm noticing just now, but what I meant is into sin. And so and there James is talking about how it's sometimes we who lure ourselves into sin. And so then we're going to get to uh, this main word um, used in the New Testament to describe sin, harmatia. And this reminds me of what Gilbert was saying a couple of minutes ago. Uh, the main definition that I hear a lot and that I read a lot of sin in the New Testament is this description of missing the mark, or as Gilbert was describing, uh, missing out on God's intention. And from what I understand, uh, this originally comes from the, uh, gr ancient Greek plays, uh, this word, where one of the main characters would make his or her fatal flaw. And that would um, bring a lot of negative consequences on that character in the play. And so they kind of missed the mark. And that's where this uh, usage in the New Testament came from. And what I want to point out is that uh, something Richard Beck highlighted in one of his blog posts. He said there's a second way that people use this word harmatia in the New Testament. And that's to mean sin that has dominion over us. And so there's missing the mark use of this word. And then there's dominion over us. And dominion over is kind of more of what I'm working with in terms of a visceral sin. And we're going to get to this uh, scripture on the next one. And what Beck, the, the way that Richard <coughs> Beck describes it on his blog, is he says, think of it as lowercase sin, sin with a lowercase s, and sin with an uppercase s. And so let's read this scripture from Paul in Romans. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. For, sh for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And so he's talking about, Richard Beck is talking about dominion over, sin that has dominion over our lives as sin with a capital S, and he argues that sin that is missing the mark are more of a one-time um, situation that is still serious and makes us feel really bad and makes us want to repent as sin with a lowercase s. And I want to give this example of it, of taking dishonesty, for example. Um, let's talk about one significant lie, and I'm not downplaying sin with a lowercase s. There's an older gentleman in our church who once told me about a time where he told a, he knowingly told a lie under oath. And, you know, he, he spent some time to unpack the reasons why he did it. 
He went on to regret it. It damaged some of his relationships, but he knowingly told a lie under oath. That was a significant, and he views it as a significant sin. However, this man is not a habitual liar. So we would go over here to uh, sin with an uppercase S and look at habitual lying. And I feel like we've probably all known people who are constantly dishonest and maybe don't even quite know the difference between when they're being honest or when they're being fully truthful. And maybe most of the time it's something in between. And someone who has uh, lying ingrained into their regular behavior for whatever reason, it could be, could trace back years uh, to find the root reason with them. And so that, that's just an example. We could put several uh, topics uh, or sins up here and kind of talk about what the difference might be between a one time missing the mark sin or a sin that has dominion over us. And we could go through, you know, judgment or judging others, you know, what, whatever that might be. We could spend the rest of the time doing that, but that kind of gives you an idea. And so what I'm going to do uh, for the rest of the time is talk about some shared characteristics I see between visceral fat and visceral sin. And like I said, you know, I got the motivation for this idea from reading about trying to have a healthier diet. And so um, the things I'm going to draw on have to do going back to that idea of visceral fat and how it connects to our more deeply embedded sins. And so the first one, like visceral fat, visceral sin is often hidden. Uh, you know, I mentioned that visceral sin is our visceral fat is dangerous because of its location. Um, you know, I'm you know, working on losing weight right now and everything, but I still have probably a good amount of the visceral fat that I started with a few months ago when I started working on losing weight uh, because visceral uh, fat is harder to burn off and takes more intentionality. And a lot of times it's hidden. You know, it can, I can look like I've lost a little bit of weight, but some of that visceral fat is still there and still just as dangerous as it was before. Uh, how many of you people remember the movie Home Alone? You know what this is from? And so, uh, you know the premise of the movie. Kevin uh, is the kid, and his whole extended family is over for Christmas, and they're all going to go on a trip somewhere, and there's so many cousins and so many aunts, aunts and uncles and everything that somehow they leave Kevin at the house, and he wakes up, and he's, you know, asking for everyone, and no one's home and everything. And so uh, there's a segment of the movie where he really has fun with this, that he's home alone. You know, he orders pizza just how he likes it, and he does a lot of fun stuff, including he takes the sled up to the top of the stairs and rides down the stairs, and it actually goes really smoothly for him. Uh, he goes uh, just down the stairs and out the front door, and it goes into the snow, and that's really good. Well, I loved this movie when I was a kid, and one time after church, and uh, one of the te I was like in elementary school, and one of the teenagers from church offered to take me to pizza after church. And so I went to lunch with him and I got to hang out with him. And my parents and my older brothers had uh, gone and done their own thing for lunch. And so I ride back with this guy. He gives me a ride home and he pulls in the driveway and he says, I know the garage door code and stuff. And so I probably give him some indication that, you know, he can just leave. And so I open the garage door. I shut the garage door. I go in. I realize nobody's home. It's just me, and this is the first time in my life that I've been home alone, and I've been educated by this movie about what you're supposed to do when you're home alone. And so, I kid you not, I went to the garage, I got the sled, and it, it wasn't like that, it was a plastic sled, and so less harm uh, was done to the house. And so, I, I got the sled, and I took it up. I wasn't courageous enough to take it to the very top of the steps, but like three quarters of the way up, I get it situated, and I actually ride down our stairs but the problem is you know kevin has that front door in front of this house and this is a look at my parents stairs and so uh, i just went straight into that wall uh, thankfully it didn't actually hurt me um but that's just a silly uh illustration of we do things in private that we wouldn't normally um, do in community right and that's true for all of us uh, and if we're working hard to identify what our visceral sin might be, it's really important to examine um, what we do when we're by ourselves and how we spend our time and um, what, are, what type of behaviors 
are we engaging in when we feel like um, no one is watching or we feel like this isn't going to uh, impact anyone except us. And I think about this psalm from Psalm uh, 32 that is ascribed to David, uh, where the psalmist writes, uh, when I kept silent, when I, so he's saying, when I was keeping this a secret, whatever it was, my bones wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And finally, there's this turn here, this, this great turn. Finally, I acknowledged my sin to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. Uh, I sense a lot of relief in this verse, especially if it is truly from David. Uh, and he said, I, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. A uh, couple more thoughts on hidden sin. Uh, the first is that I feel like there's three types of levels that we try to hide our sin from. We often try to hide our sin from others, and that's probably like the biggest priority for a lot of people who are hiding sin. You know, what if others found out or the potential of shame um, kind of drives us to secrecy, and so we hide our sin from others. Um, we hide our sins from God. You know, if you go back, this goes back to the very beginning. Remember, I read the story of Adam and Eve's sin the wrong way for a long time. Um, for some reason, for a lot of my life, I pictured Adam and Eve's um, eating of the forbidden fruit going something like this. You know, they, they each get the fruit, they take a bite, and then poof, like the genie in Aladdin, God appears, and it's just like instant, and they feel this shame and everything. But it's been more meaningful as I've actually reflected on the reality that there was uh, hours between eating the forbidden fruit and God showing up again physically. And enough time passed that Adam and Eve were actually able to be creative in learning a new skill to try to cover up their shame uh, because they immediately realized they were naked once they um, crossed the line and committed this sin. And so they learned they were resourceful and trying to cover up their shame and their nakedness, and they got fig leaves, and they're trying to make clothes and everything. And so then when God comes walking in the cool of the day and asks one of the first challenging questions of people in the Bible, and he says, where are you? You know, they're hiding um, from God because they feel this shame. And I feel like even though we all pretty much believe that God sees us, I still like we still try to hide these um, visceral hidden sins from God, and instead of just taking them um, directly to Him, uh, the third uh, thing, I, the third way we try to hide our visceral sin, our hidden sin, is from ourselves. And that's when I want to get to this quote from Donald Miller in his book *Scary Close*. Donald Miller says this. He says, "Those who cannot accept their own imperfections can't accept grace either." Those who can't accept their own imperfections can't accept grace either. And so the way I like to illustrate that is this. Is I believe that from an eternal standpoint, whether I accept my own imperfections or my own sins in life, whether I acknowledge them or not, eternally, um, Jesus and I are good. That's, that's my personal theological idea of eternity. However, I do believe there is a richness in experiencing God's grace while we're living um, this life before we get to eternity. And so let's say, just for the sake of saying it, that my, the sin in my life and Zach's life is uh, this high. You know, I know we, we shouldn't really measure sin and all that stuff, but let's just say it's this high. However, the, the part of my sin that I'm willing <coughs> to acknowledge is, is this. And, and so it should be a lot shorter off the ground. This is how much of God's grace I can fully embrace while I'm living uh, my life on this earth. Um, because God's grace is definitely free, and it's always available, but the main cost, uh, as we say, is accepting it. Um, and to accept God's grace means that we have to acknowledge our need for it, uh, which can be very difficult to do sometimes, to think about and spend some serious time in reflection on what ways do I need um, God's grace in my life right now? Uh, talking about this quote from Donald Miller, um, those who can't accept their own imperfections can't accept grace either. I want to 
Uh, let's all go in our minds to the story we know in John chapter 8 about the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And let's think about how her sin, uh, and we know it is sin because that's what Jesus called it at the end of the story, um, was hidden at some point. And you remember, uh, think about how quickly her sin went from hidden to uncovered and what that meant for her. And so she's living, she's a young woman living in a shame and honor culture um, where she gets um, dragged out um, by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to a place in the temple courts at dawn. And so we know she's Jewish because she's accountable to the Jewish law. If she wasn't, there'd be no reason for them to bring her to Jesus and try to trap him with this question they're going to ask. And so she is there and scholars debate about there's two um, times where she could have been caught in the act of adultery. It could have been the night before. And so now it's dawn and this is all like very, very fresh and raw. And she's still in a very much a state of panic uh, in her mind. Or it could have been that they, she was caught in the act of adultery, you know, days, weeks ahead of time. And they've just been waiting, you know, the next time Jesus teaches in the temple courts, um, we're going to get them with this question. Uh, either way, you could look at, you know, how, when this happened. Uh, she, either way, they take her out there and have just think about the time when you felt most exposed. Because that had to be what she was feeling. Faces that she knew and faces that knew her um, were all turning and looking at her when the Pharisees walked up and says, this, this one, she was caught in the act of adultery and now everyone knows it. And so where the story goes and where it leads is that at the, on the same day that she has to confront her sin, um, which someone was talking about um, when we, when we kind of, our sin is exposed is when we have to confront it. Um, on the same day that she has to confront her own sin, she also um, has to confront grace. Jesus confronts her with grace because when he, it's very important, of course, when we remember the end of that story, when he says, neither do I condemn you. Um, he's not saying she's not guilty. She was guilty. And that's the whole point of the story. Uh, Jesus was extending grace um, to her. And so there was a lot that she lost that day. Uh, I heard someone the other day talking about sin and what he shared on social media. Um, this preacher that I know, he said, sin will never cost you God's grace and God's love but it can sure cost you a lot of other stuff. And we, we know that, right? We know that sin can be very costly. It can cost years off our life if we end up going to prison um, because of where our sin leads us. Uh, it can cost us relationships. It can cost us jobs. Uh, it can cost us respect and a sense of dignity, uh, all that. And so um, there's a lot that sin can cost us. It cost this woman a lot that day, especially since she lived in even more of a shame and honor culture um, than we live in. Um, she thought that her life was completely over. In fact, she, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes, that she thought she was about to die um, for sure, like physically die. And so, um, so she, the same day that she um, had to confront her sin in a very tangible way is the day that she had to uh, figure out what she was going to do with the grace that Jesus offered her. Okay, so moving on. Uh, the second one, I'm only going to share three of these today. Um, the second one, like visceral fat, visceral sin grows gradually. A few years ago, my dad, um, he was a pilot, but he wasn't able to uh, be a pilot toward the end of his life because of his health was getting too bad. And so he got into real estate for a few years before he passed away. And so he invited me to go to this one-day seminar with him in Kansas City uh, when Gary Keller of Keller Williams um, came to speak. And you guys are familiar. Uh, you, some of you might be familiar with Gary Keller's book, uh, The One Thing. And the premise of his book is that um, focusing on one thing in our professional lives lead to success. He was very much against multitasking. He made the argument that, uh, in his view, multitasking was just a way to mess up more than one thing at a time. And so that's kind of how... I don't have the ability to multitask very well, but uh, here's what he says in the book or at the, the conference. He said, there is no such thing as a complete overnight success. Now, sometimes <clears throat> it seems like there's such thing as a complete overnight success, right? 
um, because there is such thing as complete, uh, what seems like complete overnight popularity. Uh, you know, Harry Potter, when the first book came out, became very, very popular very, very fast. But by no means was the author an overnight success. You know, if you've read some of the, what she went through with how many uh, publishers rejected the transcript of the first Harry Potter book, uh, we might think that Taylor Swift was an overnight success. But what Gary Keller is um, arguing is that there is no such thing as an overnight success because we don't see the rejections. We don't see the hard work. We don't see the thrown away transcripts, the ones that you crumple up, uh, the frustrations, the years of kind of getting to a point where you're talented enough to have this type of success. He says that success is incremental and that everything we do now is going to have a better chance of causing us to be successful because of what we've already done. And he says that you build success, you build on what you've already done, and that's what leads to sustainable success. And so I want to turn this around and argue that in the same way that there's no such thing as a complete overnight success, there's also no such thing as a complete overnight moral failure. And that's why I'm saying visceral sin is slow. It builds up gradually. And so let's go to James 1.15, where James is giving his explanation of how uh, sin increases in our lives and sin builds in our lives. And he says there's the conception of desire, and so, and then there's the birth of sin, the, the growth of sin, and then, of course, in his mind, which leads to death. And so if we were to look at this in terms of the story of the woman in John chapter 8 again, we would see that one day she didn't just skip to this level and decided that she has had it with her fiancé or her husband and just decide that I'm going to go sleep with this other guy. No, there was the um, desire first, and that probably lasted a while. And then there was the birth of sin, you know, which could be something like, you know, whatever flirting looked like for them, shared expression of shared interest um, with her and the person who she was sleeping with. And then there was the, the, the growth of sin, which actually led to the physical affair that she was caught in the act of adultery of. And then for her, thankfully, um, what would have been sure physical death actually turned out to be an encounter with grace, even after her sin um, grew and grew and grew um, to this point. And so you can see from the example of the woman caught in adultery um, how sin is gradual in our lives. And I, I like to think about her because, you know, um, she's such a, probably a young woman who is engaged to be married. Because if you look at the, if you go back to Deuteronomy, what you see when it says the, um, the Pharisees say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses demands that we stone such a woman. If you go back and look at um, the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the commands for um, an engaged woman who committed adultery was death by stoning. Um, there's a command for um, a, a punishment for a married woman that's death by an unspecified method. And then there's also a, a commandment for a married woman who commits adultery of death by strangling. Um, there's no um, point-blank commandment to stone a married woman who committed adultery um, by stoning in the um, Old Testament. And so the, if we take it literally what the Pharisees are saying, then we can make the assumption that this was a very young woman who was engaged to be married. And so at a very young point in her life, um, she's going through this process um, that was going to actually, for her, lead to physical death. Um, but instead, it turns out to be an encounter with grace. And so each time I share one of these, I want to share a little bit about um, how do we combat um, this type of visceral sin. And so with the um, it being hidden, that was more focusing on accepting God's grace. Um, with this one, with sin going gradually, I want us to focus on uh, the life, the temptation of Jesus. Um, and try to find Jesus relatable. You know, a lot of times we talk about our relationship with God and we just forget sometimes just how relatable Jesus truly is. And I think that one of the most important verses in the whole New Testament, especially for my life, um, comes in the last verse of Hebrews chapter 2, where the Hebrew writer says, because he himself, he being Jesus, suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Um, to me, that's probably, once you understand the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that to me is one of the most foundational 
principles in the New Testament to understand. Jesus did not just experience temptation. The Hebrew writer says Jesus suffered through temptation. I used to think of Jesus' temptation episode as a fixed boxing match where you just show up, we know who's going to win, Satan's going to lose, there's no, you know, Satan didn't stand a chance. Jesus suffered through this temptation. And the more that we can find Jesus relatable, um, not just through temptation, uh, Jesus lost a loved one. Jesus uh, knows what it's like. Uh, he lost a loved one to premature death. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood, how frustrating that is. He knows what it's like to have people make fun of him. He knows what it's like to have people betray him. Uh, the more that we can find Jesus relatable, the more it will help us um, with our lives. But specifically with this idea of how visceral sin goes gradually, I want us to find Jesus' temptation relatable. Uh, I'm going to show the movie trailer to Last Days in the Desert. Has anyone seen this movie? Okay. And so the premise is Ian McGregor plays both Jesus and Satan, which is kind of an interesting take, a way to portray Satan in the movie. And so uh, what I like about this trailer is that it shows um, some of the pain Jesus experiences, but it also gives us a better idea of the vastness of time that he spent in the wilderness um, being tempted by Satan. Because sometimes when we read those from Luke 4 and Matthew 4, we can just skim right by. You know, he went out for 40 days, and we read 40 days really fast, and so it seems really fast. 40 days is a long time to be tempted by Satan. You know, so we're going to watch this and try to get an appreciation. Uh, of course, they took some creative license with the plot and everything, but it gives us some appreciation for what he, the amount of time he was tempted. How long have you been out here, holy man? Since the last full moon, maybe a little longer. The desert is ruthless. Strips you of your vanities. Your illusions gives you the opportunity to see yourself for who you are. You people are never alone. Some spirit or something is always with you. I have water for you here, Yeshua. That's what your mother calls you, isn't it? Your father. Everything matters more to him than you. My father loves me. He loves himself only. <laughs> oh, what anger. You are your father's son. Good intentions have been wasted here. They don't need us to ruin their lives. They'll do that all by themselves. <laughs> These things he expects of you. Do you think anyone will care? Men of a thousand years from now. Have you found what you were looking for? No. But I'll stay as long as it takes. You think you're his only child? There are others. No. There is only me. There is only me. Uh, characteristic, shared characteristic I want to share between visceral sin and visceral fat. <clears throat> like foods that contribute to visceral fat, <clears throat> opportunities to act on visceral sin are readily available. Part of my struggle to stop drinking sugary, syrupy drinks had to do with the places that I went and how readily available they are. I love going to the movies. Does anyone else love going to the movies? And I would, when you, when I spend a lot of time standing and staring at this, it makes water seem a lot less appealing. Um, and so just like the prevalence of soda, um, a lot of times whatever our visceral sin is, our deeply embedded sin that we so often gravitate to without realizing it, uh, is so readily available. If our visceral sin is to make staff judgments of other people, then there's going to be opportunities to do that almost every day. And we just kind of go through it and we uh, dismiss it. And we don't even really look at it as a sin because it just becomes so common in our lives. 
And so I want to look at, as reading, you know, some of us, for many people, a visceral sin uh, might have to do with physical lust. And the way that, um, speaking about sin as being more prevalent in our lives and readily available, I read this the other day um, from enough.org. 80% of traffic on pornography websites is through smartphones and tablets. And now, versus 10 years ago, uh, they're on one of the top pornography websites. Um, Enough.org said that there are 100 million unique hits every day. 10 years ago, there was a million unique hits every day. But you can see as pornography, and this is just one example, you know, um, as pornography becomes more readily available and we have devices that are more and more personalized um, and private, then that sin of engaging in this type of lust becomes more readily available for us. And you can see the stats, um, 100 million hits a day today versus 1 million hits a day 10 years ago. And so um, when I think about how prevalent um, sin is in our lives and how our visceral sin, we are going to um, have stumbles. You know, we are going to have... Um, moments in our lives that we're not proud of. And I want to encourage us, and I'll get to this quote in a second. I want to encourage us to think of the way that we treat our visceral sin as a treatment plan rather than an amputation. Because the problem, and I know that um, Jesus uses uh, good imagery when it comes to hyperbole in terms of, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, um, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. But even Jesus didn't mean that literally. We had a guy about 10 years ago in our young adults group who ended up in the hospital because he was literally trying to um, remove his eye um, from his um, face because he felt like it was causing him to sin. Jesus doesn't mean for us to physically remove our eyes. And so uh, I appreciate the way that Jesus's um, vivid, vivid teaching can um, cause us that, yes, we do want to absolutely cut out of our lives what is causing us to sin. Uh, however, I want to encourage people to look at it from more of a treatment plan because in a treatment plan for a disease, what you have is you set yourself up for you want to um, gradually get better. You know, you want to gradually uh, remove this behavior that is deeply ingrained in your life. And the problem can be if, if I tell myself that I have cut I make a commitment, I know what my visceral sin is, and from this moment forward, I am cutting it out of my life, and as of today, I feel really convicted, it will have nothing, I will have nothing more to do with it ever again. And that goes really well for nine or 10 days, and then nine or 10 days, I have some type of form of relapse, and what do I feel? I feel like, man, the conviction I felt, the power that I felt of the spirit, what was that? Is that not real? Should I not even try anymore? Um, whereas I feel like the best route is, you know, meet with, uh, a pastor, meet with a, a therapist, pay someone $125 an hour, you know, talk to um, someone and get on um, kind of a treatment plan between you and Jesus of saying, um, I want you to free me of this. And here's what I'm thinking about. Jesus is teaching of the narrow road and the wide road. The wide road leads to destruction. Uh, we all know that the narrow road leads to life. But here's something about the narrow road. We can stumble on the narrow road, pick ourselves back up, and still be on the narrow road because we are human. And so by, um, just by our nature, the narrow road that leads to life that only a few find has to be full of people who stumble and fall down and pick themselves back up and keep walking on the narrow road. And so that's how I want us to view this more. And so I want to get to this quote from, I'm a big um, fan of the Kansas City Chiefs. This guy in the middle used to be the uh, head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. His name is Romeo Cornell. Um, this is after he won a big game. His, his players are all happy for him. And I, I like to listen to coaches talk a lot and kind of hear their philosophies of leadership. And he says, he, he told his players one time after a loss, don't let one loss lead to multiple losses. Because you can see that in sports, right? Every team's doing really well, um, and then they have one loss, and that loss is almost contagious, and it gets in you, and it leads to another loss. Uh, that's what it can be like with our sin. You know, we can have a, a relapse. We can, you know, uh, commit this, uh, what we believe to be our visceral sin, and we can feel like a little bit down about it, and we can get to a cycle where shame actually leads us into more isolation, more secrecy, 
and that can actually lead us to more desire to commit the sin again. And so I want us to all take this advice of Romeo Cornell of, you know, don't let one setback turn into multiple setbacks. And when we stay on the narrow road that leads to life, let's recognize that it's okay if we stumble on that road, but let's not let that discourage us so much that we just go over to the wide path that Jesus says leads to death. And so don't let one loss um, become multiple losses. And so I want to end um, our time today. We have about 10 more minutes, and then I'm going to get us out of here on time. And I want to do two more things. I'm going to play a song by my favorite Christian artist, whose name is Andrew Peterson, which talks about um, even the, the major theme in the song is even in light of our sin and our grittiest moments, we are still children um, of God and beloved by Jesus. And he says it in a much more powerful than I ever could. And then after that, I'm going to lead us through a brief reflection um, on a verse from the Psalms while we kind of reflect on um, what we want to give to God. So let's listen to this short song together. One, two, three, two. It's so easy to cash in these chips on my shoulder So easy to lose this old tongue like a tiger It's easy to let all this bitterness smolder Just to hide it away like a cigarette lighter It's easy to curse and to hurt and to hinder easy to not have the heart to remember that I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. I've got voices that scream in my head like a siren, fears that I feel in the night when I sleep, stupid choices I made when I played in the mire, like a kid in the mud on some dirty blind street. Got sorrow to spare, I've got loneliness too. I've got blood on these hands that hold on to the truth that I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. Well, I swore on the Bible to not tell a lie, but I've lied and lied. And I've crossed my heart and I hope to die. as far as the east from the west if it's true that you put on the flesh of a man and you walked in my shoes through the shadow of death if it's true that you dwell in the halls of my heart then I'm not just a fool with a fancy guitar no I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom me of Isaiah chapter 6 in a way where Isaiah receives this call from God but then expresses I'm not worthy I live I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips and I can't do what you're asking and then God makes him clean um, I love you know he, he draws on that verse of you've taken my sin and scattered it as far as the east is from the west um, so, so beautiful, his words there. I want to end our time um, with a reflection. I'm going to read this passage that's on the screen probably three or four times. And what I want to ask you to do while I'm reading that is be very vulnerable with yourself. Um, you know, we're not going to have a time of sharing after this part. We're just going to be done. Um, but I want you to uh, really pray this prayer with the psalmist and really let this be your prayer. And um, like I put on the screen, um, kind of be brave in the way that you're praying it and really, truly ask God um, to help you both identify um, and address whatever sin in your life might be so deeply, deeply embedded that it has become visceral 
And so I'm going to um, kind of share this in a reflective type of way, and um, then we'll be done. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me, lead me in the way everlasting. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you give each of us the courage to adopt this prayer. I pray that you give each of us the, the courage to be upfront with ourselves, um, not be hard on ourselves, but to accept your grace, um, which will mean acknowledging um, what we need to acknowledge. Uh, God, I pray that uh, for those of us who have some type of leadership, uh, you equip us with the skills, the pastoral skills, to gently guide others um, through recognizing what their visceral sin might be and helping them address it. And ultimately, God, we do pray with courage that you lead us into the way of joy, into life everlasting. It's the name of your wonderful son, Jesus, that we pray this prayer. Amen. Thank you guys all so much for coming. See you around. That was a great lesson. Thank you. Thank you.